At Maximus, we are focused on the future of federal government. We deliver mission-driven innovation at speed and scale, turning insights into impact. We are a top systems integrator and leading provider of transformative technology services, digitally enabled customer experiences, and clinical health services. We help agencies navigate obstacles and anticipate the unexpected by becoming more agile, empowered, effective, and ready for what lies ahead. We are Maximus, moving people forward. Learn more at Maximus.com federal. You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. That's one of the core differences between Russian and us, because we think that government have to serve us, uh, but in Russia, they basically, can, they treat their people like servants of the government. So it's completely opposite. So th this philosophy comes from uh, the fact that we realized as Ukrainians that government should make our life easier and uh, not just exploiting us. <laughs> so, so that's the goal of the government. And that's why president personally like started this uh, when he was elected. Zelensky said like I want to build a digital state. That's why because we believe that digital like digital can completely turn the scene. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host Brian Chittister, and this episode is a very special one that I think is going to bring a unique insight into not only government IT modernization, but also what has been happening from a digital perspective to help Ukraine win the war against Russia. Over the past few weeks in my role as an advisor to the G20 Global Smart City Alliance with the World Economic Forum, I've been fortunate enough to consult on a smart city project that is underway for the city of Kiev, the capital city of Ukraine. This has brought me awareness into the innovative programs being deployed at the Office of Digital Transformation to Ukraine. And I wanted to bring some of these insights to you guys. So I asked Alex Bornyakov, the Deputy Minister of Digital Transformation of Ukraine and also the head of the DS City Project, to join the show and talk about some of these areas. Bornyakov was appointed as the Deputy Minister of Digital Transformation in October of 2019 and has been boosting the growth of Ukraine's IT industry. Before he joined government, he founded a number of successful companies and startup incubators and was awarded the best CEO, COO at the Global IT Business Awards in 2015. He also recently was included in a ranking of 25 trailblazing business leaders in Ukraine. Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hi. Yeah, my pleasure. Help us understand right now, um, for those that obviously aren't living in Ukraine and only seeing what's happening on the news, what's it like living uh, in your country at the moment? Well, first of all, it really depends uh, where you exactly located. <clears throat> because uh, Ukraine is a pretty big country. And thanks to our military, uh, Russians haven't overcome the majority of, of territory. So they basically, the front line is on the east of the country. 
So closer to the east, it's harder to live in a normal life. And uh, it's a really big difference. Like in Kharkiv, which is on the eastern, almost at the front, um, there's like every day they being shelled and uh, they suffer from rockets, Russian rockets, and, uh, and people die. People get injured. And uh, if you're in Lviv, which is western part, there you can relatively safely, um, I know, uh, live and uh, and and do your stuff. So um, in Kiev, where I am located, from time to time, I hear sirens, which is alert to get to get to the shelter. So you have to be careful. Um, but for the last couple of weeks, uh, our anti-air defense actually did a great job. So no rockets really hit Kiev. Um, but Zaporizhia, Dnipro, Kharkiv and other cities, and especially with the front line, of course, there's a real war. People are dying in uh, um, civil people, military. And so this is this is tough. Um, and if and even in the cities to the west, there are still like lo- a lot of roadblocks, a uh, car few hours. So basically, uh, after eleven, it, it depends on the city. And so in each city, it could be a little bit different. But generally, after ten, eleven p.m. till five, maybe six a.m., you have to be at home. So there's no people on the streets. There should be no p- people on the streets. Well, unless you have like unless you're military or you have like special tasks, so 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 generally like cities are empty after night hours. Um, I can say that majority of, of like stores and uh, the gas stations, they the, the markets, everything is some restaurants. Sometimes they they are working, but a lot of businesses still closed. Can I ask you what did it look like pivoting? We talked so much about how countries all over the world, especially governments all over the world, had to pivot when the pandemic hit, right? This was obviously oh, yeah. probably even more of a draconian pandemic, more more impactful uh, directly to your country. How did you, as, as a government operating, pivot and change and still allow for the existence of what you were still working on, but doing, doing so in a wartime? Well, in, in the beginning, it was really tough. Uh, before the war, our team actually uh, actively worked on digital transformation of Ukraine. Um, specifically, I was in charge of turning Ukraine into largest European IT hub. Um, and But we had a lot of ambitious and uh, uh, big, hairy goals. Like, yeah. um, and uh, this, of course changed dramatically after the war started. But despite the war, we continue to follow the, this path. And it, it, I think it's only strengthened our desire to make Ukraine a powerful high-tech state. And, and no matter what, we have a huge potential for this. Um, if you ask me about what exactly has changed, of course, uh, uh, at some point, our top priority was to... Uh, face Russian aggression, develop the plan on how we defend ourselves, 
uh, and how we fight back. So all the tasks that we were doing before on digitalization, they were postponed for a while. And uh, well, the team was like taking a lot of new challenges, like creating an IT army, managing the script of fund of Ukraine, um, doing volunteer job, um, providing services uh, and new services, government services, I mean, for those who are lost their homes, who are, became refugees. Uh, but after that, after, couple, after two months, we, when situations were, became more or less stable, we continued to uh, work on um, our projects from before the war. Like we, uh, for like, like an example, um, we continue to implement uh, electronic residency, which we started before the war for it. So, for the, so the people from around the world can register a business without coming to the country and open a bank account remotely. So that's, that's in short what happened and how we managed this. And I, I've seen you talk about this time before we'll call it the the physical aggression started but you said you've been at war with russia for years um on the cyber front can you talk a little not specifically but talk a little bit about kind of what that has been like and and how you've been uh mitigating those attacks um before this this physical invasion even began indeed uh um russia was attacking um the, uh, our digital infrastructure and ukrainian state institution for years and um, before the full-scale Russian invasion, uh, uh, we recorded a significant increase in cyber attacks. Um, it was like, I don't know, like maybe two weeks prior to that. Um, I think uh, they almost doubled efforts. So um, specialists recorded more than 400 cyber attacks during the two months of the war. Um, and government institutions and local authorities, the security sector, as well as telecommunications, media, logistic industries, and they were most commonly targeted. Um, but when the war started, we actually started, uh, there was a huge increase, like 100, 200 incidents per day. So, so it's like, I don't know, 300 times more. And um, there was for a while um, phishing or the distributed mal mal uh, denial of service attacks. They're trying to get to every hole, <laughs> mm -hmm. basically. And in cyberspace, I think the, uh, the Russian military pursues the same goal as, as we are. Uh, I mean, uh, as, 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 as their other branches. Uh, like attempts to destroy the infrastructure necessary for the functioning of the state, of the state, um, attempts to destabilize the situation in the country, spread misinformation. That's that's really they 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 have a lot in, in on, on this front, They're spreading misinformation, fakes, fake news, and um, uh, of course attempts to prevent Ukrainians Ukrainians from receiving information about what the state is doing to protect and assist them. Yeah, we, we in the United States saw a lot of that happening, and I'm sure you're aware, before the 2016 election, um, mm -hmm. and continue to see it, a lot of misinformation campaigns, um, so very, very familiar with that, and a lot of what has mitigated that is 
I think work governments working with the private sector to be able to engage and kind of stop those things from from proliferating. One of the things that you guys have done, um, you and uh, I know uh, Miko Fedorov, the, the your your boss, yes. have done a really good job of engaging the technology sector and the private sector in a way that I don't think many have ever seen before. Um, and probably the closest government has ever come to working with technology companies in that agile way um, to get results. Can you talk a little bit about not only what you're doing, but kind of what you've learned throughout this process that you think can, other countries could learn when they are working and engaging with these very same companies to get obviously not the exact same results you are, but um, in, in a different in a different area of focus? Well, I think that the key reason here is the motivation. Um, we used to work with the technology sector since the beginning of uh, creation of the ministry, which is 2019. So our ministry is pretty, pretty new. <clears throat> it haven't existed before this. Uh, like in the previous government, there was no ministry of digital transformation. So... But uh, we have our ups and downs um, because, like, it's always a matter of trust. Like, if you trust uh, in, in the majority of country, I know in the, even in the U.S., there's, like, a lot of opposition and, and, and people not always trust government. Um, but when the Russia started its war, uh, I have uh, witnessed um, unprecedented support from people who were opposing us before. So that's why I'm saying the key, the key motive is, is the motivation and, and the mutual goal that you want to reach. Like you had your I know, arguments with their, with some of their part of the market, but when you see a threat that really like can destroy uh, your homeland, you unite to get it. So, and you start to ask, what do you, what do you need? how we can help you. And, uh, um, and that's what happened. People realize that um, Russians want to destroy us as a country, not just I don't know, maybe like take over a couple cities and, 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 uh, and stop. No, they want to destroy sovereign Ukraine and put the puppet um, government and stuff and of course, do this uh, those things like they did in Bucha and other cities, just killing people who are poor Ukrainians. So I think they're, they're when they when people from private sector realize that um, they needed, and and I felt this because I was kind of managing some of the process, and 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 uh, it was hard for them to like find a leader between them. So they turned to government and say like. Listen, we we want to be helpful. Let's just uh, and but we need to coordinate. And there and most like uh, I don't know suitable institution for coordination is is a government in 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 such extreme conditions. Makes makes absolute sense. I mean, I, we witnessed from up from the outside, but I'm sure it must have been a whirlwind trying to manage all the. Um, all the different companies trying to come into support to make sure you can logistically leverage kind of what they're helping. One of one of the highest profile ones was uh, was the tweet that went out to Elon Musk to support for for Starlink. Can you talk a little bit about how that how that went down? 
<laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty like casual story. <laughs> um, so it was I I I don't remember exactly. It was the second day of war, third day of war, and uh, we we had a meeting with the with the minister and and he said like they probably going to start destroying our infra uh, communication infrastructure because um, they have this they they maybe they still have it but they definitely had this mobile cellular network like military grade cellular network um, so the ba basically they have this those like uh, not like cellular station they they usually uh, fixed but they have on the on the wheels like those mobile cell reception towers and when they uh, come to certain place they uh, deploy them and, uh, and and start using their own network so he said that well and of course they had jamming equipment a lot of, like this uh, this there's a separate they have separate branch of uh, of, of in, in their military that responsible for jamming and uh, uh, um, intercepting communication so um, and Ukraine Ukrainian army um, was not well equipped like with their satellite radios or something so they uh, also rely a lot on uh, on mobile network so he said like listen we need to do something with this and uh, Starlink is, is, is a, is a, is a uh, um, perfect choice I mean perfect tool for that and he's but like what we can do um so uh, how we can reach elon Musk? so let's just i don't know make a post and ask for everyone uh who might like you know the theory of six handshake handshakes so we basically said and and figure out that we need to make a public announcement that we need starlings but then uh we need to go to every like opinion leader everyone we know in the states or I don't know in a, in other governments and tell them to if they can pass this message uh, to Elon Musk. Um, so uh, we were basically like fishing for <laughs> for for someone who can get this message to him. Um, I don't know how message got through, but I know some people reach out to his mother. And maybe his mother reached out to him. So I don't, I don't know exactly, but, but we we made like I don't know dozens of attempts uh, through different people to reach out to him. And um, we were so amazed when he just responded to Mikkel Fugger and personal. Um, I mean, in, in, I think it was Instagram. Yeah. So oh no, Twitter. I think he's just replied him in Twitter, and uh, and said yeah. They're on their way. Yeah. Yeah, it was a, it was a very cool story to see from the outside, and to me, a really creative, uh, really innovative way to try to reach people in, in such a quick way. Um, social media hasn't always been used, at least by governments, in in kind of this manner. So again, I think another another way you guys have kind of paved the way in a lot of these things. Um, you mentioned the or the um, desire you guys have had around innovation, even prior to to all of this, that you wanted to be that uh, technology hub uh, in Europe. Yeah. Um, and and you said a, a couple months after the invasion and things stabilized, you started to return back to some of the priority projects that you had been focused on. What does that look like now for you? So you you touched on a couple things, being able to remotely set up accounts and other things, but 
Um, I know one of the things you're working on is this Dia City project. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about that as well as the other priorities that Ukraine has for this kind of post-war world? Yeah, well, <laughs> so Dia City is a, uh, is a legal framework for IT companies, for startups, for venture funds to incorporate in Ukraine and get the lowest tax in the region. So it's basically like 9% corporate tax and very low labor taxes. So you pay, if, if you're employed Ukrainians uh, or any other uh, to this company that is, is resident of DCD, you basically pay 8% labor taxes combined instead of 40%. So um, we estimated like you're, um, you pay like, almost five times less taxes than in a regular environment. Um, well, anyway, it's for, it's for uh, uh, making investments in startups easier and uh, for, because the legal environment for venture investment in, like, in, in Ukraine was really outdated. Is the idea to kind of create that almost like a Silicon Valley within, yeah, within Ukraine? Yeah. We can put it this way, yeah. So, so it's basically like Silicon Valley, but, but virtual. It's, 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 it's not some place. It's, it's like a list of companies. So you apply and uh, you're in the list so you can pay low ta lower taxes and you're subject to do, to different uh, kind of treatment from the legal standpoint on investments process or investing processes. Um, and uh, we launched it two weeks prior to the war. And of course, like some residents started to apply, but then this process completely stopped. Uh, after like three weeks, uh, we uh, we realized that still people like still people still apply. I mean, companies still apply. Um, so we saw that like oh, so they even in the times of war they still like <laughs> continue to operate. Um, and then we decided to extend uh, um, focus of DACD not just on IT companies but also like on production of. Uh, um, drones and uh, automated some uh, equipment and what is needed for army army um, we also continue to implement legislation on crypto um, assets on virtual assets which we're working right now to and hope finish this till the end of the year so because we believe that we can be really a country that uh, um, could where you could, could set up a crypto business and uh, work with the financial system of Ukraine. Yeah, crypto has been a big part of kind of what your strategy has been um, from the very beginning, especially around fundraising. Why was that the method of choice? Oh, that's that's the interesting question. <laughs> uh, to explain this, to give a sense of what was of the big difference between February 23rd and February 24th, is like literally on February 23rd, no one really believed, like if you ask someone from Ukraine on February 22 or 22nd, uh, like if you believe Russia is going to invade Ukraine, possibly like majority of the people would say no. So uh, a lot of uh, institution, businesses and people in Ukraine were not ready to this. So when it happened, uh, it was a shock for economy. And of course, uh, the National Bank of Ukraine that com almost completely stopped the banking system. But in the same time, of course, we had to deliver a lot of things from outside and pay for them because, again, um, there, there's no like we were not fully prepared. 
maybe it's 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 bad. I don't know. History will tell us, but um, uh, but it is what it is. And um, we realized that we need a lot of bulletproof vests. We need a lot of medical supplies, food supplies, and and, and many many other things. And how we can buy this? Only through crypto. So we connected with the again with a, with a uh, private business and say like, listen, we can we do something? Can we set up a crypto fund? Because we as a government, we're not allowed to do this. But maybe together we can create enough um, bus, enough uh, exposure to get money in because we really need them, and and you can help us. So this is how aid for Ukraine or crypto fund for Ukraine. Uh, started and uh, uh, it turns to be a huge success because eventually like we got at this point we got more than 60 million dollars and we spent the majority of those funds and you, you can find our reports on, on the website donate.digital.gov.ua and, um, and 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 turned to be in, in the first week I think that there was the, the only way to pay for uh, supplies from from outside the country one of the underlying technologies of crypto is obviously blockchain and even even prior to the war i think you guys have been really innovative in how you've been looking to envelop blockchain into some of your strategies can you talk a little about that because it's not a technology that most governments are really focused on right now how are you guys looking at blockchain as something that you can use moving forward uh, of course, we consider blockchain uh, and uh, carefully studying. We're studying uh, the, the areas of implementation or possible areas of implementation. We actually had a pilot in blockchain. There was one uh, register of uh, uh, assets that were confiscated, and then they were supposed to be on this open market. So they were in blockchain. That's one one example, um, and uh, it's also like started not long before the war, um, and um, actually like a month or two ago, uh, we uh, we we learned that there's a um, European Union initiative on European public blockchain. So we applied to be part of it, but since we're not European Union uh, member yet, but maybe you, your listeners know that we got the status of candidate on in, in European Union. So we applied and said, they said, look, we, you can be observer, and then, but let's maybe figure out something. And uh, um, we are now um, in a process of uh, probably like studying um, to, uh, implement like a pilot a project on blockchain verifiable diploma university diplomas because uh, millions of students complete the, their education each year and go on to higher studies or corporate job in this case student credentials are verified through lengthy document verification process uh, so this results in significant overhead uh, as documents are transferred between institution for verification um, and there's a need for an automated credential verification system, which can reduce the time required for documents verification process. So I think we think that blockchain technology can be used to reduce this overhead and get a like database uh, con uh, 
big database of dip university diplomas, so no one can fake fake them. So, and you can easily check like where this person get this diploma if if it's legit and if it's there. And then probably, well, I think in hundred percent chance it's not fake. But it's it's not there. Well, it means that something is shady. So, so this is uh, this is what we do right now. And then, so we're still piloting the thing. So it's not like we're really using blockchain at this point. It, I can also see it maybe as a use case. Uh, I'm curious. I know one of the big challenges that that you and your country have had is, especially in um, in these these missile attacks and bombings, that infrastructure, physical infrastructure, is being uh, destroyed. And in those physical infrastructures are are documents for people that might not have digital um, digital documentation, right? So for all intents and purposes, they might not have any papers to, to really show that they're a Ukrainian citizen or, or who they are. Um, so I, I know that's probably going to be a challenge moving forward. Do you see that being a potential use case and, and also reestablishing um, the, the citizens of Ukraine? Well, we're actually doing this, but in a centralized database. So we have this uh, DIA ecosystem, uh, and inside this ecosystem, we have DIA app, which is basically a government uh, app, which contains or, or you, where you can store your driver license, car title, and, and car insurance uh, passport, digital passport, and many other. You can pay taxes from this app, and so far it was downloaded almost like 18 million Ukrainians down. So it's it's a huge. Uh, I know it's the most popular app in Ukraine, <laughs> really. And um, uh, uh, when the war started, and and we, and, and well after the war started, um, and uh, people started to lose their homes, we developed a functionality so you can record, and you can apply for uh, uh, compensation through this app. You can make your photos. You can like submit your request to government special database of destroyed. Uh, property so uh we're doing this project again but not with the help of uh, blockchain technology and a part of this is because um, we have to make adjustments to the law that about registers to like allow distributed ledger technologies so this is uh, this is still so we can pilot but we cannot fully implement Right now, but uh, I think it's it's, it's going to be done also soon. So um, right now, as a government, uh, we cannot use blockchain technologies like really on, on on massive scale. That seems like a challenge that I know a lot of governments have, it, whether it's it's wartime or or whenever, is policy getting in the way of technology where policy is really. Um, so far behind because it couldn't possibly keep up with technology. We saw this a lot with the pandemic. Is that something that you've seen and you guys have tried to really look at, especially as as you've needed the agility to to change and adapt to your current situation? Well, we I think uh, all of our government branches, like what I personally feel, did more agile than ever. So the, the decision making sure. process is fastest. Is I don't know. No, I, I I had never witnessed such 
velocity of <laughs> of uh, decision of decisions that comes from government. Um, and um, we, as a ministry, uh, I think we basically pioneered agile approach in the whole government because it usually worked like really like workable process. So a lot of things in Ukraine being done really rapidly uh, for the, for the recent months, month. So as we, as we start to wrap up, I'm curious, as you take a look at what kind of the future state looks like for Ukraine um, through the lens of, of digital transformation, how much do you look, especially the U- U- European Union, how much do you look outside uh, for influences into what you can incorporate into what that what that evolving strategy will look like moving forward? Well, of course, we uh, we're still looking on um, best practices from around the world, and um, we now have like legal obligation to do so, especially because of the European Union candidacy. So. Uh, basically, if you want to be part of the European Union, you have to com- apply, comply with the, with a lot of uh, procedures and, 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 and things that they do in their own way. But um, they they have no things like DIA, and you can't imagine how convenient it is. And one of the proofs that almost 20 million people downloaded it. So, and it's a government app. So I don't know if there's any app in, uh, in, in on the earth that in, in government produce and um, almost like forty percent of population using it. <laughs> that's uh, yeah, unheard of. Yeah, that's 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 pretty much unique too. So I think uh, on digital front we are more advanced than some European countries, and uh, I think we even capable of contributing them those practices, but not just consuming, but also contributing back. Uh, and I know that like our role model uh, from the start was Estonia. Yeah, I think that there are, there are a lot of people's role models in terms of best yeah. in class. Now Estonia uh, recently signed up for uh, getting all, getting DIA um, and uh, implemented in, in Estonia. So, it, we completely turned this, so we we were implementing a lot of things that they were doing. It, it, like electronic residency is also a project that Estonia piloted first. But uh, there are a number of things that they uh, haven't come up with, but we already implemented them, and they're they're working. Um, uh, like in Poland, uh, for example, they now able to recognize our driver licenses. In automatic way, because again, they saw how we build this uh, uh, driver license, digital driver license in DIA, and they want to do some uh, the same in in, um, in Poland. So, um, so Ukraine, I think, could become a role model for some digital aspects of uh, uh, of governance. Um, and uh, I don't know. We it's, it's still it's, it's some it's so many things are coming up. Uh, like I don't know. Like you, basically, you can pay taxes with this app, and uh, I don't know if it's a, if you're able to like being in the European Union to pay pay taxes through the app or register business through the app. Um, and uh, so <laughs> um, maybe maybe I should ask it this way. And I'm I'm kind of smiling as I'm asking this question because I think I already know the answer. 
because I can kind of hear it. I know, I mean, you're, you're, you come from the private sector, you're an award-winning CEO where, where competition is really what fuels you. And in government, you don't hear competition very much, but now there is this, uh, this UN digital government index, and there's a way of kind of ranking. Yeah. How, how much pride do you take in, in Ukraine getting to the top of that list and being a, a country that is one that people used to look at Estonia in that way um, and, and others where they, they are best in class in, in digital government? Is that, and again, I think I already know the answer to this, but is that an important priority for you, especially personally? <laughs> Maybe not for me personally, but I definitely know that the minister Fedorov is <laughs> is want to beat them. <laughs> yeah, I have no doubt. All right, he's he's, he's younger than me and almost almost ten years younger than me, and uh, uh, his like his eyes are still like in uh, bright and and he's like uh, he's fierce in that. Like I want to build the top uh, convenient country in uh, in the world, and is is very ambitious. So. That's we so, need more government leaders like that, and I, I think we're we're seeing that more and more. But I think we need more government leaders like yourself and him in place that that have that desire to make to make government best in class. It shouldn't it shouldn't be the it shouldn't be the laggard that it is the way it is all over the world. Not just not just in Europe, not just in the U.S. Everywhere. So I, I, I totally think that's, agree. I totally agree. Yeah. Because, um, and it, and I think that that's one of the core differences between Russia and us. Uh, because we think that government have to serve us, uh, but in Russia they basically con- they treat their people like servants of the government. So it's completely like opposite. So th- this philosophy comes from uh, the fact that we realized as Ukrainians that government uh, should make our life easier and uh, not just exploiting us. <laughs> so so that's the goal of the government um, and. Uh, and that's why president personally like started this uh, when he was elected. Zelensky said like I want to build a digital state. So that's why because we believe that digital like digital can completely uh, turn the scene and also like digital can fight corruption. Digitalization can fight corruption by by the nature of the digitalization. You you remove those obstacles or people that are in way uh, intermediaries. Yeah, so it it makes things more transparent with the block for with blockchain included, and uh, and so many other things and cashless economy and so so this all connected. We call this like a digital economy. If maybe if I if I use a broader tra- term, uh, but generally uh, I think that's the way to make government more accountable, transparent, and convenient for its citizens. I I couldn't agree more. Um... Any final thoughts you want to leave with the audience today? I think there's there's obviously a lot a lot going on for you professionally, personally. We're all kind of we're all kind of watching and and trying to uh, trying to be in it with you as much as possible. But but I know there's a lot on your mind. Any final thoughts that you want to leave us with today? Well, maybe yeah, yeah. So Ukraine is a home of a really powerful and talented IT community, combining around three hundred thousand people. And since the war started, some people ask me like how we can help. And uh, there's a lot of funds and charity, but I always say the best way to help Ukraine is to invest in Ukraine. So if you know Ukrainians who are looking for job, especially in the IT sector, or they they start a, like trying to raise capital, or 
I don't know, you you know, like companies that uh, bidding for some uh, contract and they from Ukraine. Yeah, consider them because this way you're going to definitely help Ukraine in, in a mutually beneficial, beneficial way. Thank you. That, that's helpful. I think I think understanding how um, any of us that are that are so far away can can help even doing um, even doing a, an atom size of support is is something that we all want to understand. So thank you for that. And thank you for your time today. It's been it's been really enlightening. Um, and for your leadership, not only uh, not only tactically, but strategically for for digital government. Thank you. Thank you, too. This has been the Government Huddle podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to governmenthuddle.com or wherever you access your podcast. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chittis Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.